Good morning, church. It's good to be back to see so many familiar faces. My name is Matt Johnson, and I'm one of the three elders here at the Ridge. And so very excited this morning to preach from God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, won't you please turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 14. And uh, we'll be reading that short section of Luke chapter 16, verse 14 to 17. Luke chapter 16, verse 14 to 17. And um, then we'll read our last parable together. Okay. So we've been looking at a piece of uh, scripture where Jesus is defending his ministry. And it's the last parable, and uh, we've seen five over the last uh, weeks that we've had together, starting at the beginning of the year, taking a break, then doing the parable of the older brother last week. But um, Jesus is defending his ministry. He's getting a lot of flack for his preaching because it was drawing the kind of people that good society didn't want around. They were called sinners and tax collectors. And they were the kinds of people that nobody wanted to mingle with. They wanted them out of the synagogue. If you saw a sinner and tax collector in the marketplace, you did not catch up over a cup of coffee. You walked on the other side of the street. They were not welcome. And so Jesus tells a number of parables to defend his ministry. And we looked at them. We looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. We looked at the parable of the two sons, the younger and the older. We looked at the parable of the dishonest manager. And then lastly now today, we're going to be looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, if you would please read with me from Luke chapter 16, verse 14. We'll pick up with Jesus talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination. That word is detestable, loathed in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Let's pick up from verse 19. And here's Jesus' answer to the scoffing of the Pharisees. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in you, in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The context of this parable is important. Don't you think it's interesting this morning? That the very sin tax collectors were rejected for was what Jesus said the Pharisees struggled with themselves. Greed. They loved money. Pharisees loved being rich. They idolized wealth. But then also the same thing that they rejected sinners for was the very thing that they ran after in their own hearts. And Jesus said, You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men, these things that you're so interested in, Pharisees, that are so important to you, God detests. And then we looked at last week how these Pharisees, they were the older brother. They've got no objectivity about themselves. They were those who justified themselves before men. But Jesus said, God knows your heart, Pharisees. And so he tells this parable, and he starts with, there was a rich man. It's, it's aimed at the Pharisees in particular. And we're going to learn a lot from it this morning, but I'm going to move quickly. There are four things that we're going to look at in this parable. The first is, we need to see the contrast of circumstances in this life. You notice how vastly different the rich man is to Lazarus. Secondly, we need to look at the reality of heaven and hell. It's very important this morning. And thirdly, how we are to be ready for heaven. And then fourthly, the relationship between God's word and signs and wonders. We're going to touch on that briefly. So, this morning, let's look at the contrast of circumstances in this life. So, we have this rich man who's a Jew, as well as Lazarus. And Lazarus is desperately poor. I want you to quickly just to stop for a moment and look how poor he is. He has no earthly possessions to speak of. So he's lying outside of this gate. He has health issues. He's got these oozing sores that uh, the stray dogs come and lick. He's hungry. He longs to be fed from the scraps of, from the rich man's table. He's alone. He's got no company. His only company is stray dogs. He's got no education to speak of, no family, no employment really. And uh, his skin lesions, his health problem would have excluded him from certain aspects of temple worship. And guys, this morning, who is saved in the story? If you look at who goes to Abraham's side or bosom, which is heaven, who is it? It's, it's Lazarus, not so? Who's not saved in the story? It's the rich man, right? Now look at the wealth of the rich man. He is clothed in purple. That is the most expensive color you could get in the old times, in, in, in the ancient days. He had a fine linen garment. He had a mansion. It actually had a gate. If you had a gate in those days, you were quite something. He ate sumptuously every day, and he was well known. He would have had a big funeral. It says he was buried. We don't actually even know if Lazarus had a proper funeral. But in the story, the first thing we need to see is that it is possible that a believer can go through such a time of trouble that he is destitute. 
And it is possible that you can have everything in the world and go to hell. And I want to say this morning, this is a very important point for you me because in the church today, there is a teaching that talks about the health, wealth, and prosperity that's guaranteed for the believer. And what I mean by that is there is a teaching in the church that says if you're saved, then by nature of your salvation, you are guaranteed in this life. You can claim the wealth, the health, and prosperity that is yours automatically by default as a Christian. If there was ever a parable or a story told by Jesus to default, to, to debunk that entire theory, it is this. Here you have a Christian, friends, a Christian who is suffering. And this morning, it is very important for us to see this because I was going to stand up here and say, these teachers in the church at the moment are preaching this prosperity gospel. But you know what I came to be confronted with whilst I was preparing is actually every one of you and me love the prosperity gospel. Because watch, when something is taken away from us, what do we do? We complain. And friends, for you and me, the most difficult thing is to embrace suffering. And Lazarus' story is sometimes a Christian can suffer to the point of death. That the release of suffering can be martyrdom. And in the early church, what Joe was sharing this morning with us was, was something that was quite normal. Was that a Christian would lose his property, lose his family, lose his friendships, lose his wealth, lose his standing in society because he claimed Christ as his Lord and Savior. And for us as a 21st century church, many of us, we live in vast prosperity to the rest of the world. We have a home that is brick. We have, many of us have cars. Many of us have clothes that uh, we can choose more than one when we get up in the morning. Friends, this morning, you and I need to know that if Christ calls us into suffering, we need to be ready for it. Because there is no guarantee in this life that we will have heaven on earth. That's coming in the next. And so Paul says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Does it mean we're saved through going through all this trouble? No, no. Is we learn to know Christ more and to enter into the call he has upon our lives by embracing whatever God puts before us. And that can be times of plenty, like Paul says, and that could be times of lean. And we are called to be content in both. Secondly, what I want to bring to our attention this morning is the reality of heaven and hell. Isn't it interesting in this story, no matter how unequal the circumstances are, extreme wealth or abject poverty, every man is equal when it comes to death. You cannot escape it. And this is important for us this morning because we are told in this parable you are guaranteed to go one of two places. Either we go to Abraham's bosom or side, which is a nickname of heaven. Jesus also called it paradise. He said, remember to that thief on the cross today, today you will be with me in paradise. Or we can go to Hades, where in this instance, this rich man goes to hell. The other thing that we see about this afterlife is that it's immediate. 
is that there's no such thing as a soul sleep. You don't fall asleep when you die. The second you die, you either go to either heaven or hell. And uh, Jesus said that. I said it just, I quoted it uh, in a moment ago. It says, today, he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The second you die, the second you go to one of those two destinations. Thirdly, we also see in this parable that these two destinations, they are eternal, perpetual. And this is the seriousness of it. Abraham answers the rich man and says, besides all this, between us and you, between Lazarus and myself in heaven and you in hell, it says there there is a great chasm and it's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. We need to know this morning that wherever you go, once you die, it will be eternal. And there is no such thing as a place called purgatory. There was some teaching that grew up in the early church that somehow through prayers of those that are still alive here on earth, or good works this side, you could shorten your hell sentence and call it purgatory. But friends, this puts it clearly that wherever you land, you do not get out. And I want to say this morning, this is why Jesus took it so seriously to go after the sinners and tax collectors. It's because he knew what was at stake was eternal. Why do you think Joe has given up her life to go to Libya? Is it so that she can be a, a good uh, World Health Organization worker? So you can have nice accommodation. I've looked at those pictures of your house, Joe. It's not the most comfortable place to live. It's that you can go soak up the Libyan sun and walk around streets where there could be uh, gunshots and power failures. No, no. She believes that her purpose in life is to make every opportunity count for those to come to faith in Christ. She's just been called to Libya. And I want to say, we don't preach on hell enough here. I want to say it is not a fun thing to preach on, but I want to say it is so helpful for you and me. And I want to say as well that when we look at hell this morning, it will help us in understanding what we really need to think about and what we need to give ourselves to in this life. If you had to ask me, Matt, why should I hear anything about hell this morning? Well, firstly, it's this. It's because Jesus preached on it a lot. Did you get that? Jesus preached on hell a lot. And can I be honest, this is the very first time I'm preaching on it. In all my years, which are not many in ministry, I'm preaching on hell. But I realized I'm preaching it this morning because Christ did it. Secondly, I'm preaching on hell this morning because it is so easy to live like the rich man. I tell you, church, we have to be so careful about what motivates us in this life. Because naturally, instinctively, what we are after, our flesh, is we are after what the world exalts. And friends, what the world is after, money, sex, power, pleasure, I'm telling you this morning, has no eternal consequence or weight in the life to come. And so we have to be very careful that we adopt the same attitude that God has 
to the world around us because we fall so easily into it. Thirdly, is this is what we have to click into this morning, is that we are only useful on earth to the degree that we are ready for heaven. You see, the problem is, you and I get so caught up and are so anxious and so motivated by stuff that we can't take with us into the next life. And so when you start living for heaven, you live very light because you realize no matter how much wealth you accumulate, no matter how much you invest into that marriage and those relationships that you have, none of what you live for in this world you can take into the next. And so when you start to think about what really matters in heaven, it will make you ready for earth. Oh, and this is the biggest one for me this morning, second biggest is that it makes us thankful for our salvation. Christians, you don't really begin to praise God for salvation until you realize the agony and anguish Christ saved you from. And my concern is that you and I, what we tend to do is we think we're giving, doing God a favor by being saved. We're doing God a favor by doing some good stuff and maybe even coming to church and doing some Christian stuff. Friends, that is not the way we approach God. When you start to see what hell is like, you start to see, oh Lord, I'm so thankful for heaven. And many of us need this this morning because we need a fresh awakening of gratitude to Jesus Christ for what's on offer through his body and blood. And lastly, I'm so glad you shared this morning, Joe, because when you start to think about hell, you become more fervent in evangelism. Can I just push the pause button this morning for parents? Our job is not to just educate and clothe and make sure there's a secure environment in which our children can be nourished in. One of the most sobering moments was when I was on our balcony at home and the thought dropped into my mind that Sarah is lost until she finds Jesus. Our children are on their way to hell until they find Christ as their Lord and Savior. When you start to think about your colleagues and your friends, even this morning about your own life, about the direction and where you're going, my friend, the most helpful thing for you is to understand what is of true value and importance in this life. It is eternity. And so what is hell? We know in this parable that it is is a place of torment and anguish. We know that hell is a place where there is the most fervent prayer meeting going on for mercy at this moment. Don't you notice how the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But friends, even though there is the greatest prayer meeting of mercy in hell, hell is the absence of mercy. It's too late. And mercy is when you have no bargaining power. And the absence of mercy in hell means all the opportunity in life was missed. And now you might cry out for mercy then, but none will come your way. Hell also is a place where we will have all of our senses. Lazarus, I mean, the rich man's able to call. He feels, he tastes, he thirsts, he sees, he hears. He also has memories. We will have our full faculties. Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things. In hell, we will have all of our senses and all of our memories. Hell is also an eternal place of punishment of sin. And I want to say to you this morning, God can only punish sin in two ways. 
One is by the blood of Jesus, which for us who look to Christ, it is the most perfect satisfaction of the justice of God. That when the Father turned his face away from Jesus on the cross, he was fully satisfied to pour out the punishment of sin on the Son of God. But there is a second way that God punishes sin. And that is the fires of hell. But the difference is, even though the fires of hell burn for eternity, they never satisfy God's justice. That's why they keep burning. And ultimately, those are the options. And what is the proof of hell this morning? Well, it is the Bible. And you might say this morning, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, my friends, if you don't believe the Bible, then you're going to be in trouble. Because ultimately, you will agree with it on that day, but you will agree with it too late. And part of my job this morning, and this church, is not just to preach sermons of encouragement, but sermons of warning. That ultimately, we only have one chance. It's in this life. And the proof of hell is we believe Scripture, this side of the grave, but the proof will be experienced in the next if Scripture is rejected. Third big point this morning. How are we to be ready for heaven? That's the point of preaching on hell. Is that first and foremost, Jesus has mentioned it in Luke chapter 16, verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Ah, but since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. Jesus said this. He said, up until my coming, Scripture, the first five books, the law, and all the prophets, the Old Testament, pointed and said, Jesus is on his way, the Son of God. I have come, I've arrived, and in me, in my person, I've proclaimed good news. And it's good news. And the way that you are ready for heaven is how you respond to this good news. And the way that you respond comes through what the nickname of heaven is, Abraham's side or bosom. The way that you are saved is the same way Abraham was saved. See, the gospel and the way that you're saved is nothing new. It didn't just start happening with Jesus. Way back in the time of Abraham, he becomes the model of how you become ready for heaven. Is there was a day God's word came to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, through your physical seed, there was someone who was going to come who through, through this physical seed, every family of every nation was going to be blessed. He was predicting Jesus. And what did Abraham do? He believed God. And in that second of believing God's word, Scripture says Abraham was put into a place of right standing with God. Righteousness. It is the most wonderful thing to see that God says the way that you and I are saved is through simple faith. Abraham, all he did, do you want to know how you're ready for heaven? All he did was God's word came to him. 
He believed what God, is, God said was true. And in that second of faith in the word of God, Abram was saved. Now there's a, there's a warning attached to this. Jesus is telling the story to people who could not see that. And I want to say this morning, do you see that for your life? If I ask you this morning, why do you have any assurance that you'll go to heaven? This is important. Pay attention to me. If I had asked you this morning, do you have any assurance of why you would go to heaven? If you say to me, well, I'm a decent person. No one's perfect anyway, right? That's what we love to say. I'm not, I've got a few flaws, but so does everybody else. Do you stand before God this morning or in this place going, you know what, I'm all right because I'm okay in myself. I want to say this is why the parable was preached. is to say, you and I, in our natural state, in our born physical state, have got no hope. Because the way that you are saved is by faith, not works. It's not your performance. This morning, you can pray for 10 hours. You can quote the same line for 20 hours. You can fast. You can do whatever you like to try and earn salvation. God's saying, skip the sweat. Come towards his word, which is the good news preached. Put your faith in what God says. Not who you are. And what this requires is repentance. And I have to preach this again. I mentioned it a bit last week. But repentance is something that... You have to do in order to receive salvation. You see, the funny thing is the good news that is preached to us in Jesus Christ come to, comes to us as bad news first. Is that when the gospel is preached to us, it tells us that actually we're not that good. And in actual fact, who we are, it's like filthy rags before God. And in that moment, you have a decision. It's a decision you have to face this morning is what you will do with God's message, God's word, as it comes to your life. Will you fight it? Will you defend it yourself? Will you disregard it? Or will you take the first step towards salvation, which is you have to change your mind? And that means I agree with you, God. I agree that when your word comes to me and says, I am a sinner, I see it, and I say, you're right changed my mind also about Jesus. You see, before I was my own savior. Before me, if you had to ask me my reason and hope for some sort of healthy, prosperous afterlife, it was my performance. Repentance says you leave yourself in the dust and you run to Jesus. You have to change yourself, your mind about yourself and about the Son of God, that He really is the way, the truth, and the life. You have to change your mind about what really is available as the gift of forgiveness. What will satisfy God's punishment of sin? Is it your own blood? Or is it Christ's? And this morning, I want to challenge you this morning. Have you seen it about yourself? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned towards Jesus and seen him as your Lord and Savior? What have you done with the message of the good news in your life? Not your children, not your husband, not your spouse, not your friend. You this morning. How has God's word come to you and what have you done with it? The first step is repentance. The second step is faith. And faith is acted out by becoming the beggar in the story. 
You see, many of us think, naturally, I think of myself as the rich man before God. I'm doing him a favor. I've gotten pretty good at public speaking. I can play the piano. I, can, I can't think about other stuff. I can do well, but I'm sure there are other things. And I think before God, man, I'm actually pretty impressive. Friends, we have to come to God like the beggar. You know what a beggar does? He puts out an empty hand. Is he's got nothing in himself that can kind of twist the person's arm to help him. He needs a gift. That's mercy. And this morning, as God's good news comes to you, it first comes to you as bad news. You see, I'm actually a rotten sinner and I need Jesus. My own blood is not able to pay for my own sin. You change your mind. You go and you see Christ. You change your mind about who he is. You see he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then what do you do? You don't come to Jesus bargaining and saying, you know what, I'll kind of earn this thing. No, no. You come to him like a beggar. And the amazing thing about a beggar is he can only get what he's asking for as a gift. As a gift. Is we receive salvation freely by stretching out an empty hand. And saying, Jesus, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. I need mercy. I need you. Salvation. It's God's asking you to stretch out an empty hand. He's asking you, it's a humbling thing. It's something that makes us deeply aware of our own weakness. It's a place of shame in a sense. It's a place of regret. It's a place of understanding who we really are. But in that moment, God is saying, I don't want a full hand. I want an empty hand. What I have to give you is you can't earn or buy. It's called grace. And so my friends this morning, do you notice that in the story, we only know Lazarus' name? In God's eyes, the rich man is of no consequence. Because what matters is this. And I ask you this morning, does heaven know your name? Is your name written in the book of life? Are you known to God as Father? Or is He Father to you? Because I tell you what our problem is, and I'm preaching from personal experience, we live so that our name is known on earth. That's not how you're supposed to live. We live so that our name is known in heaven. And I ask you this morning, are you ready for heaven? Is your name known in heaven? There's a beautiful scripture in Isaiah where it says, Our names are graven on God's hand. Is your name there? And I ask, what are you waiting for? You see, what Lazarus is told to do by this rich man is to go back and say, Send Lazarus back from the dead because my five brothers, they're going to perish. Are you waiting for some sign? The rich man thought that if his brothers could just see some supernatural sign, they'll be saved. Abraham says, no. You won't be saved by some supernatural sign. You're saved by faith in God's word. What are you waiting for? 
When Thomas said to the disciples, when they reported to him that they had seen Jesus, he said, there's no ways I'll believe in him. Unless I put my fingers in his side, unless I touch the mark of his nails, unless I see him face to face, I will never believe. And when Jesus does rock up and graciously let Thomas touch the fingers, the hands and the, the side, what does Jesus say to Thomas? He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Then he talks about us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Salvation is available. Heaven is open. Are you ready for it? Christians, are you ready for heaven? Let's live like it. Is your family ready for heaven? Are your colleagues ready for heaven? Are our spouses ready for heaven? Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There are people here this morning that have asked the question, what am I here for? What am I here for? God's answer to you is, get ready for heaven and make sure those around you are ready too. This is why Jesus went after the sinners, church. This is why Jesus went after you. It's because what he had to offer was more than education, was even more than employment. This was more than the applause of the world. It was eternal life. Our oh, Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be ready for heaven so that we might be fit for use on earth. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is if there is anybody here this morning who is not ready, Lord, don't leave them till they are. If that's you this morning and, and you're struggling, you haven't even quite understood what I've said this morning, but you want to be ready for heaven, come speak to us afterwards. Here, we'll be here in front. If you've done it in the service, my friend, get ready for a change in destination. You belong to God. Live like it. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.